1: Women To Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another week of Women To Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. If you're listening this afternoon and you would like to call in and and ask a question of my guest, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so by dialing 888-888. 3293306. That's 888-329-3306, um, And as always please check out our website to see who's in our lineup and, and coming on the show over the next few months. You can find all things related to women to watch at womentowatch.net That's women the number two watch.net. So I'm going to get right into it uh, with my guest this afternoon. I'm I'm truly excited and honored to have uh, joining me today, Gloria Allred. Uh, Gloria Allred is really the most prominent civil rights uh, attorney in the U.S., female attorney, I should say, who has fought numerous high profile cases over the past thirty years with a particular interest in cases involving the protection of of women's rights. Uh, Gloria is also a partner with the firm Allred Maroka and Goldberg, who she started the firm with um, as fellow Loyola graduates, uh, Michael Maroka and Nathan Goldberg. So uh, Gloria, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me, Susan.
1: I'm thrilled to have you. Really excited and, and hoping that I can get through all of the questions that I have for you today. Um, you have quite a career and uh, a history, and it's it's really fascinating. Um, first of all, I want to point out, some people might not know that you're actually from Philadelphia originally.
2: I'm from Philadelphia. I love Philadelphia. I am forever indebted to philadelphia for you know building a strong foundation for me you know i was blessed to be able to attend philadelphia high school for girls and be graduated from girls high uh, to then be accepted uh, to the university of pennsylvania and be graduated from penn um, with honors in english and then to be able to also teach in philadelphia to teach at benjamin franklin high school uh, for uh, several years, also to have been prior to that. And this is some Bayer-Gimble Brothers department store. So, you know, I have a lot to thank Philadelphia for, and uh, it, it always has a special place in my heart. And I'm looking forward to returning to the area uh, at some point uh, in June for the trial of Bill Cosby.
1: Okay, and um, I was just going to ask you when your next trip back might be. You and I were um, able to meet during the convention here in Philadelphia back in July, and um, I know that you're – growing up, it was a a working-class family in southwest Philadelphia, which I'm sure was a a lot different than – uh, than it is today. That, talk just for a few minutes, if you can, Gloria, about what, what that neighborhood was like and what it was like growing up for you as a young girl, um, the only child uh, of mom and dad.
2: Well, my parents only had an eighth grade education. My dad was a door to door salesman, which was very hard. Uh, my mom was a full time homemaker. Uh, it was a safe community. Uh, and, uh, there were other girls on my block that I became very friendly with, uh, and, and, and actually one that I, I still have, uh, frequent contact with, her name is Gloria as well, and, uh, so we all looked out for each other, a lot of the kids would come over and play at my house, uh, actually, until I was about 19 years old and visited California, I didn't know that anyone lived in a home that wasn't attached to another home. <laughs> so, uh, But, you know, it was wonderful public transportation, uh, which was very important uh, to my family and to me because we didn't, couldn't own a car because we didn't have any enough money for a car. And most importantly for me were also the public libraries, um, which I loved and which my dad took me to almost every sunday and uh, i I always had great adventures reading the wonderful and great books in the public libraries of Philadelphia, so they were very important
1: mm. was that where your um your first interest in in becoming a teacher developed
2: well i uh, I actually became a teacher um Because I felt that the long hours working at Gibble Brothers Department Store were just too much because I was a single mom and had, you know, a little girl. Uh, And uh, having a toddler, it just didn't work out for me to work those long, long hours required in a department store. So I, I started to substitute teach till I could find another job, and then I fell in love with teaching. Um, and, and, uh, and I did teach there and, uh, was assigned to rather tough school, Ben Franklin, Mm -hmm. because I had done well in the teacher's test. And apparently there'd been a court case. If you do well, you go to the top of the list and then you are assigned to the, you know, what they used to call the disadvantaged schools, which actually was great for me that I had to work there because turns out that I really enjoyed it that the kids were very much like I was you know they didn't they were economically at a disadvantage but really wanted to learn and appreciated you know having teachers that wanted to help them learn uh, and help them succeed so uh, it was a great opportunity I was one of the first female teachers in the all boys uh, almost all African American uh, Benjamin Franklin High School and my love of teaching just grew from that experience and then when i went to los angeles i asked to teach in watts uh one year after the watts rebellion or one or watts riots and i moved to california with my daughter 5 years old who was 5 years old at the time with the 100 dollars five-year-old child and a lot of dreams Mm. and uh that's how i went to california looking for a better life right in terms of the weather and being in the sunshine and uh and i love la but i still have a special place in my heart for philadelphia
1: you know, that's interesting to me, Gloria, that you didn't actually pursue working in um, a school like Benjamin Franklin High School, that it kind of came about by chance, and um, but was... Well, you really didn't
2: get to choose your school.
1: Yeah. So the, the
2: Board of Education decided where the teacher went.
1: But wouldn't you say, looking back, that's, that's right where you needed to be?
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I was so glad to be assigned there, and... Um, and, you know, there were 3,000 students, as they say, as one of the first female teachers. But I always had a very positive experience at, at, at Ben Franklin. And, you know, I I had a very good relationship with the students. And, you know, I found that many of the stereotypes that people had about teaching at that school were just that, just stereotypes. And, you know, all kids want to learn. Some people, some kids have defenses that they put up to make it seem like they don't care about school but deep down they really do care about learning every child wants to learn um, and you just have to you know be a teacher who understands that it's not so much about what you're teaching it's about what they're learning and if you're a good teacher you're focused on that and helping them to succeed
1: Mm, seeing through those defenses that they're they're putting up every day I guess yeah, right. Yeah, that's important.
2: So, just and I I knew how important good teachers were to me at Girls High, so I knew they they wanted that as well.
1: Yes, yes. I wanted to to ask you about that your time at um Philadelphia High School for Girls. You um you actually won a partial uh, excuse me, a partial scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania and you were obviously quite bright, you know, academically. But I think I I read in your book there was a, a time when you did not believe that to be true. And, uh, you know, a teacher, I think a really wise teacher pulled you aside um, to to let you know what your actual scores were. Can you tell that story?
2: Well, right, exactly. What happened was I, you know, these were girls, uh, you had to have, you know, a, a high IQ or have done very well academically in the school from which you came in Philadelphia. And, you know, I, I, was able to get accepted, but I wasn't, I I started feeling, well, look, most of these girls I thought were daughters of bankers and lawyers and doctors and, you know, professional people, and they would have a big advantage over me. And I started feeling, well, I can't do it. I'm not going to do as well. I'm not as smart as these girls. I want to leave and go back to the regular high school. And I went to see a counselor and she said, Gloria, um, you know, who do you think is the smartest girl in your class? And I told her, and I named the class president Sandy Walkowicz. And then she pulled out her drawer, and she pulled out a few files, and she says, well, I she looked at them. She said, I have Sandy's IQ here, and I have your IQ here. She's only five points higher than you are, and that's statistically significant. You belong at Girls High. We're not going to let you leave. Mm -hmm. So being a person who was raised, especially when I was in Girls High too. Understand that you should follow what the authorities say, mm-hmm. uh, and she was an authority in the school. I didn't leave, and of course, years later, I figured out that she didn't really have the uh, Sandy's file or my file in her drawer. She was just saying that because she didn't want me to leave oh. Girls High. Oh, I love
1: that. And that
2: was yeah. really good. A great counselor, right? Because it turns out that it was a very positive experience for me to stay at Girls High, and to be graduated from Girls High. And and that's my life then took a different path because as a girls' high grad, um, because of the standards of girls' high, I was able to be accepted at Penn and then on and on Yeah, uh, to go on from there. And so I'm very grateful to that counselor whose name I don't know and just to girls' high. And so public schools can provide a very positive experience, and that was exceptional, and I'm still in touch with uh, girls' high from time to time. I was actually back there not long ago. And 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 I just love what they do for girls.
1: Yeah, I you know, I think it's um, interesting how many people, if you ask them um, about a teacher or a counselor that may have said something to them in their lifetime, they remember that. It's very impactful.
2: Exactly. And yeah. that's the thing about, you know, schools, everybody. It, it's not so much where you came from, it's where you're going and what kind of commitment you want to make to getting there and teachers who help to guide you uh, to, you know, so that you can, you know, work to the, your, the best of your abilities.
1: And would so, you, I, 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 and the,
2: and the values I, that they, you know, that they impart. Yes. To be honest, to be persistent, to be hard working. Right. And to believe that you can be the best that you can be, that you can be a leader, that that's what the community needs.
1: Yes. So, um, Go, going back you know, at your uh, teaching role at Benjamin Franklin high School a few years later it was uh, i guess nineteen sixty six recruiters from Los Angeles school district uh, came calling and and asked you to come to l a now how tell me how did they find out about your work there
2: well i well, I think they were just recruiting at the University of pennsylvania okay and um and they uh, so I, I i heard about it somehow and i went and was, for the interview and i said to them i would like to teach in watts do you have any vacancies and they said how soon can you come because <laughs> you know the neighborhood had been burned down mm. uh you know in the rebellion that had taken place or the riot uh depending on your point of view and they need there was white flight out of the schools they needed teachers badly so i was happy to go in because the I anticipated that the students there would be very similar to the students at Ben Franklin High School, and I would have a positive experience. So I did come out. I taught at Jordan High School in Watts. Then I became, for a year, I left and became a, the first full-time female staff member of the Los Angeles Teachers Association, which later became the Union. And then, I, and there were walkouts from the East L.A. schools, the Mexican-American community at that time, wanting better and higher uh... and standards in the schools and more qualified teachers uh... for the latino community which they were right about and which they did deserve and then i went back to teaching also in watts at fremont high school so um... that was a little bit about my teaching career in la and then i i was studying I, I had earned a master's degree from in english education from new york university and then i went on to earn a credential uh, and secondary school supervision which means to be a principal in a high school. But uh after I earned it, uh it was the Black Power Movement, they wanted African American principals in the African American schools as role models. That definitely was a worthy goal and needed and it was very much needed. Um uh, so rather than go teach in the all white San Fernando Valley, or mostly white, I decided to or rather than being a principal there I should say, I decided to go to law school to see if I could help to improve conditions in schools. I did, and that's how I became a lawyer.
1: Um, You know, Gloria, when people think of you and hear your name, they automatically um, think of strength and a a fighter and an advocate and fearless. I think fearless is probably, you know, reading your book, that word kept coming to me. I just truly look at you as a very... um, a fearless person, and I, I you know, I, I can't have an interview without talking about a very pivotal moment in your life, um, that I think speaks to probably some of the motivation behind the work that you have done for over thirty years. Um, Actually, forty years now. Uh, forty years, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, s- soon after you went to Los Angeles, you were on vacation in Mexico, and you write about this in your book. Uh, very openly uh, that you were raped at gunpoint by a Mexican doctor and that experience um, I will ask you this I'm not going to make assumptions but I would imagine that that experience is something as you have worked uh, trying criminal cases all of these years and really seeing some uh, bad stuff you know some bad people I'm wondering how you were able to work through the painful memories of that experience while continually working with women who have been through similar experiences.
2: Well, it's really not in spite of, but it's because of my life experience, that and not being able to collect court order child support on time or any amount that,
1: you know, that I
2: should have been able to collect it, uh, you know, being... Uh, sexually discriminated against uh, in pay on the job uh, when I was an assistant buyer. So many other experiences, they all combine to make me a feminist, you know, a person who cares about legal, political, social, and economic equality for women with men. And um, so that's, the, that's part of the experience. Uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, to, uh, this weekend about the fact that you know, abortion was uh you know, before nineteen seventy three it was uh not legal for a doctor to perform an abortion in many states in the United States. Mm-hmm. And um even even though it was not a crime for a woman to receive it, it was a crime for a doctor to give it in many in many places. And so I was thinking about that because Norma McCorvey passed away this weekend. She was Jane Rowe and Roe v. Wade. Yes,
1: yes. I wanted to ask you about how you felt. Which, yeah. Pardon me? Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, just, I briefly.
2: I represented her yes. briefly.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, well, not briefly, for a couple of years, I think, at least, and maintained contact with her, or she with me, uh, more to the point. Um, and in fact, she contacted me not long ago, and even though she had been very vigorously, strongly pro-choice for many years, And I helped her to have a voice on that. Um, Then she became anti-choice, you know, for reasons that she had. She needed the financial support, and she was seeking financial support, you know, from the anti-choice movement, and also she had a religious, she developed, uh, you know, years later, a religious um, belief or ideology, which helped her to justify her anti-choice position. Um, But... You know, I I'm not judgmental. If i don't believe in a woman's right to choose, and you can choose not to have an abortion or choose to have an abortion, that's what choice is all about. Rather than and even though Norma at the end believes that abortion should be criminalized, and that a woman should not be able to obtain a legal, safe, affordable, and available abortion, um, you know, I I still respected her right to make that decision. But it you know it reminded me of when I had to have an abortion when it was not legal and safe to do so um and and so I never want any other- anyone else's daughter to have to suffer that again, and we now have of course uh the president trump um, which some people are calling the so called president trump uh or not my president trump um has nominated uh a his his choice for the next associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, and Neil gorchk, I'm concerned may very well be an anti-choice vote on the court and um and then if president trump uh... is able to fill more vacancies uh, you know we could very well you know end up ultimately with a reversal or a significant shipping away of roe v wade that's going to harm young women poor women rural women because many of them will never be able to get an abortion in their state if states are Permitted once again to criminalize abortion um and some states still have that on their books and uh but are just not enforcing it because of roe v Wade, but that will go into effect if roe v Wade is ever overturned, so we're living in very, very dangerous times
1: um it's certainly an interesting times, and you know it i one of the questions I had for you, Gloria, since you brought up trump was um if if you were to take him out of the equation. I was wondering if there was any policies, anything that he is looking to um, put forth that you do support.
2: Uh, I'm, not, I'm not, I don't know what you mean by take him out of the equation. He's well, the president of the United right, States. Right,
1: right. Right, I guess not. So, in other words, basing an, an opinion alone on policy, I'm um, wondering if are there's. Are there
2: policies that he has there, that I support?
1: There you go. Yes.
2: Yeah, uh so far I first of all it's not clear what his policies are on anything, except what his policy was on immigration, uh, which was, you know, stayed, uh, junction issued against uh one of his executive orders. So I think it remains to be seen what his policies are. I can't tell you which ones I will support because it's not even clear what his policies are. We have you know, Pence saying one thing and then we have the President saying another about certain issues. Um, so I'd have to wait and see what it is that they really are going to say that they're gonna stand for before I could tell you if I could support anything. Yeah. But I am an issue oriented person. Okay. Yeah. Um, i I do want people to know in the interest of full disclosure I do have a lawsuit pending against Mr Trump or uh, President Trump on behalf of one of the accusers uh who uh you know, Summer Zervos,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, we we all remember uh, what happened during uh, the campaign, and that was, uh, you know, where we all heard him on the Access Hollywood tapes. If you'd like, I'll tell you a little bit about that lawsuit, because we filed it in January of this year, January 7th, uh, 17th, on behalf of Summer Zervos. And the lawsuit alleges that Ms. Zervos had been subjected to unwanted sexual touching by Donald Trump and that she had told family and friends about the incident not long after the incident occurred. But she didn't go public or take any action against Mr. Trump at that time because she decided that his behavior had either been an aberration or a test or he may even have regretted or been ashamed of his behavior. And then the lawsuit uh, alleges, and this is a quote, that in October of 2016 that all changed because on October 7th when Trump's own recorded crude and vulgar comments to Billy Bush on the Access Hollywood tapes recorded in 2005 were broadcast, it became clear that Trump's sexually inappropriate behavior towards Ms. Zervos was entirely consistent. With Trump's own words and his belief that he had the right to sexually assault women and even to boast about it, and then at the October 9th presidential debate, Trump told the world a bold-faced lie. He stated in response to a direct question from Anderson Cooper that he had never done any of the things that he had bragged about to Billy Bush. So that's a quote from the lawsuit, and then the lawsuit further alleges, quote, for the first time, Summer Zervos saw Trump's behavior towards her for what it was, that of a sexual predator who had preyed on her and other women, and she realized she was just one of the many women who had been victimized by Trump's predatory conduct, and she could no longer rationalize or excuse his behavior by telling herself that his behavior had been a mistake or an isolated incident for which he might even be ashamed because Trump had no shame. His own boasting to Billy Bush made clear that his behavior was intentional. Um, anyway, so uh Ms. Ervos knew that Donald Trump had lied, that's what the lawsuit says, to the country and to the world and knew that the statements he made to Billy Bush were not just words or locker room talk, but they were evidence of his pattern of misconduct towards women and Ms. Ervos felt a responsibility to inform the public of the true facts. It was unacceptable to stand by and allow a presidential candidate to lie openly with impunity to the American public. She came forward, as a number of other Trump victims did, to inform the public of the facts she knew were true, to make clear that Donald Trump had kissed and groped her without her consent repeatedly. Uh, and, and, And what did Donald Trump, the liar and misogynist, do to cover up his lies? This is still from the lawsuit. He lied again and debased and denigrated Ms. Zervos with false statements about her. Trump immediately lied, saying that he had never met Ms. Zervos at a hotel or greeted her inappropriately. He quickly went further, describing Ms. Zervos' experience, along with those of others, as made-up events that never happened, 100% fabricated and made-up charges, totally false, totally phony stories, 100% made-up by women, many already proven false, made-up stories and lies, totally made-up nonsense. He falsely stated, every woman lied when they came forward to hurt my campaign. Total fabrication. The events never happened, end quote. And then during the last presidential debate, he stated that these women were either being put forward by the Clinton campaign or they were motivated to come forward by getting 10 minutes of fame and nothing more. So uh, continuing, the lawsuit says, but it was Donald Trump who was lying when he falsely denied his predatory misconduct with Summer. and derided her for perpetuating a hoax and making up a phony story to get attention. And in doing so, he used his national and international bully pulpit to make false factual statements to denigrate and verbally attack Ms. Zervos and the other women who publicly reported his sexual assaults in October 2016. So his statements were plainly defamatory and caused serious harm, The lawsuit lawsuit seeks to make Donald Trump accountable for the significant damage he's caused Ms. Zervos, a woman who had the fortitude and courage to come forward and speak truth to power so that the nation would be informed about the true Donald Trump, end quote. So I say, Susan, that enough is enough. Truth matters. Women matter. Those who allege that they were the victims of sexual misconduct or sexual assault by Mr. Trump matter. And by the way, prior to filing the lawsuit, Ms. Ervos volunteered to take a polygraph exam regarding her allegations of Mr. Trump's sexually inappropriate conduct toward her. And the lie detector test was administered by a very experienced and recognized polygrapher, and she passed the lie detector test. The examiner concluded she was telling the truth. And by the way, because truth matters, before we filed this lawsuit in November of 2016, I called on then-President-elect Donald Trump to retract his statements that the accusers were liars and that their allegations are fabrication and fiction. And I said then that retraction would undo some of the damage that Mr. Trump inflicted on his, his accusers. But more than two months passed since I challenged him to retract, but he did not issue a retraction, and that is why she filed the lawsuit. But even now, Susan, she's willing to dismiss her lawsuit if he'll simply retract his false statements about her and acknowledge that what some are alleged about Mr. Trump's sexually inappropriate conduct towards her is and was the truth. And, by the way, we are looking uh, forward to his response. We've served the lawsuit, and his response is due on April 3rd. And if people want to know more about the lawsuit, um they can and if they want to you know if they want to support the lawsuit too they can go to my webpage gloriaallred.com there's an opportunity for them to donate too because we need the public support for this lawsuit um and so just go to gloriaallred.com there's a link there that they can be supportive of this lawsuit and we look forward to their help
1: well we'll have to we'll definitely have to see what happens there gloria and you know it's it's a shame to me that that you've had to be involved in so many cases like this you know i'm i'm it would be inappropriate for me to comment i'm I'm certainly not going to not knowing any of the the facts or details but um well, I
2: will say that no one's above the law, including the president elect that's right or president that's of the United right. States and the Supreme Court said that in the case of Clinton versus Jones um and so uh that uh, we we think that in order for the truth to be determined uh you know we're going to it's going to be necessary now for for president trump to answer her allegations in a court of law rather than in his bedroom by tweeting in the middle of the night and and summer's very brave to have brought the the lawsuit she knows she's going to be attacked by uh, President Trump, and possibly, and his supporters and defenders.
1: Well, others.
2: But yeah, she's yeah. willing to uh, endure and suffer those unwarranted attacks against her in order to vindicate her rights.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll be we'll be watching it closely. Um, y- you know, you have you have been involved in a lot of very high-profile high cases and um, and famous men also who, you know, have been in the spotlight for not very good reasons, including. Uh, Roman Polanski, O.J. Simpson, Scott Peterson, Tiger Woods, Bill Cosby, as you mentioned. Um, I wanted to ask you a question regarding the O.J. Simpson case in particular, because um, in 1995, we all know the verdict came back not guilty. And at that time, you had said that it really was a sad indictment for the criminal justice system, and it could have very serious consequences down Mm -hmm. the road. Do you think it did? did that particular case... Well, I, you know,
2: I, what I think was, was very important was that, I mean, I'm not going to second-guess a jury's verdict, but the there was a civil lawsuit after that right? brought by the estate of Nicole Brown Simpson mm-hmm. uh, on behalf of his children, and uh, also brought by, um I believe, the estate of Ronald Goldman, who was also killed that night, um, and uh, the jury did find in the civil case that he was liable for the wrongful death of uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. May they rest in peace. And so, you know, there was uh, at least some uh, civil justice, even if, uh, you know, many people did not feel that the criminal case resulted in, you know, that the outcome was what they thought it should be but that's for the jury to decide. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's in custody and serving a sentence in custody in Nevada now for a different crime.
1: Right. Um, Gloria, listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I have an interesting question, I think, from one of our listeners. We'll We'll be right back. Thank you. I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area in mid-November, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hema Janogada, in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411. That's montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and Womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Gloria Allred. Uh, Gloria, again, uh, the most prominent female civil rights attorney in the United States. And also I want to point out the author of Fight Back and Win, um, a truly remarkable um, book that offers women lots and lots of lessons in empowerment, um, as well as um, legal advice and and the story of of over 50 cases that Gloria has tried. Um, Gloria, I mentioned to you just before the break that I, I received a question from one of our listeners and a colleague of mine. Her name is Anna McCoy, and Anna is the Chief Global and Strategy Officer at Urban America. And she said um, she was curious to know if, you know, when we talk about equal pay, which is at, you know, the the top of the list for um, issues that we're all fighting for for women, um, do you think that the White House might be a good place to start? And in particular, she wanted to know, um, you know, when would first ladies be compensated for their efforts and commitment um, as civil servants? I wanted to know your take on that.
2: Well, that's a very fascinating question. Uh, yeah, they do uh, have, uh, they're expected to have a job, not just be kind of a hood ornament, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but um, I, I do think that they do, you know, traditionally they've had responsibilities, uh, and they, and I think it would be a good example to compensate them it's going to be interesting to see to what extent Melania Trump uh, fulfills those responsibilities, almost full time as our former first lady Michelle Obama uh, did. And uh, but no, I think that's a, I think that will be a good idea. Yeah. To, to show that women's work has value. That's right. Inside the home, and outside the home. That's right. And in this case, her home would be the White House when she eventually moves there, which she has not yet done.
1: Right. Um, you know, I, w- I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, the equal pay. And, and actually, my question for you is, aside from equal pay, what rights are women denied in the U.S. today?
2: Oh, well, first of all, we don't have the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, which we've been fighting to add to the United States Constitution since 1923. That would simply say it would be a constitutional amendment which would simply say that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex, in other words, on account of gender. So there have been various obstacles in in the path of that, and um, we need to add that to the Constitution. Uh, It's clear that women still have a significant disadvantage where it comes to their pay earning less uh, than men do, significantly less uh for the same or similar job um women are still facing sexual harassment in employment which is a major focus of my law firm um sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination is a barrier to the enjoyment of equal employment opportunity and there are many many women uh who face sexual harassment on the job uh which puts them in a no win position if they say yes the guy who harasses them on the job may get tired of them and fire them if they say no, then he may go into ego shock and then either demote them or, you know, make their life more difficult or ultimately terminate them. The good news is that women are fighting back. Uh, they're going to lawyers like me, and they are, you know, getting settlements, uh, and they are able to uh, file lawsuits and being successful in lawsuits. So, But that is still a big problem for women. As is, there are many challenges in family law, most women can't get adequate child support. They can't they can't get it on time or in the amount ordered. It's the main reason women are forced into lives of poverty and onto welfare, where most women do not want to be. But the deadbeat dads are still getting away with um, you know not paying child support uh, in in an adequate amount or on time, and they're not suffering serious enough consequences to give them incentive to pay. There's still quite a bit of violence against women, rape. There's a lot of child sexual abuse going on um, in schools, in homes, many, many places. I mean, there's not a day goes by that I'm not dealing with someone's case, an adult survivor of child sexual abuse somewhere in this country, and usually more than one. So, yeah, there's still a well, long, so when long the, way to go, and you, those are just some of the areas that I'm mentioning.
1: Yeah, you know you you have a daughter and and she's well known lisa bloom um she's an attorney and um you have and a my, grand and my granddaughter and is granddaughter. Also an attorney yes so oh yeah. i was i didn't know she graduated. i thought she was in law school is she actually no she's been an attorney now she, okay she so is. you know that's interesting to me there's three um generations there of women attorneys and and again you've been practicing and really out there tire, tirelessly working um for civ, um, civil rights and, and employment and women's rights. When you look at your daughter and your granddaughter and, and you look back at over 40 years of work that you've done, can you say that we have come, let me, let me ask it a different way, how far have we come when you, you look at your career and then you look at the, um, the culture and the atmosphere that, that Lisa and your granddaughter are working in today?
2: Well, I would say that, you know, a conservative will, you know, look at 50 years ago and look at today and say, you've come a long way. And I look at 50 years ago and today and the future, and I say, we still have a long, long way to go. Um, So because um, until we have equality, equal numbers of women in Congress and in the United States Senate, equal numbers of women elected to state legislatures, you know, to city councils, as mayors, as governors—I mean, we've never had a woman governor of California. We've never had, uh, you know, a woman president. uh... We came close last time, but unfortunately, did not succeed. And many women are finding that, you know, what happened to Hillary was very—it resonated in their own lives—that the most qualified person happened to be a woman for that job. That's Hillary Rodham Clinton, and she—she she did not get the job. She lost the job. Was given to the most unqualified person who was applying for it, and that was President Trump, a man. So this is something that at the highest levels in business, in many Fortune 500 companies, women are still experiencing. And so this is, you know, I mean, I'm proud of my daughter. I'm proud of my granddaughter. I'm also proud of my grandson, who's a paralegal, and thinking of taking the law school entrance exam. But you know what? We have a long, long way to go. Our daughters, I think you know they have higher expectations than some of us have had um but go- that means that they're going to be more disappointed later on because they expect to be judged on their merits if they've worked hard, which they do, and you know and and done everything that they're supposed to do in life, and then they face this barrier of sexual harassment or sex discrimination or both um you know or they're raped you know, walking down the street, or they go on a date, and they're, you know, maybe they drink too much, and then suddenly they're, you know, they're incapacitated, and someone thinks they have the right to commit an act of gender violence on them uh, when they can't consent. I mean, there's a lot that they're going to face in life, and that they never expected. It's not part of the fairy tales. Uh, They're facing real life, and it means we have to stand up and, you know, we have to stand up against the injustice that our daughters are going to face and are facing and fight for justice for them and let those who hurt them know that there are serious consequences. The cost of the wrong is not going to be borne just by the wrongdoer. It's going to be borne by, excuse me, not, by, it's, the cost of the wrong is not going to be borne by the victim. It's going to be borne mostly by the wrongdoer with criminal consequences or civil consequences or both.
1: I, I want to know uh, Gloria that uh you you've come across much um what's the word uh, you know a lot of I said this at the top of the show the the work that you do um makes you aware of of some very evil things that go on in the world does it ever get you down do you ever um get tired of of fighting
2: no uh And how? How do you know Fighting injustice is very good for the health. And this is more than evil. This is dangerous. This is harmful to women. It's harmful to our daughters economically, emotionally, physically, um, you know, individually. And we just cannot accept it. Uh, You know, being tired, saying, okay, well, I won't do anything about it, uh, that's a luxury we cannot afford it's my duty to help. I'm blessed to be able to help as many people as I can, not everybody, but as many as I can. And that's that's what I'm going to do because I'm privileged to be a lawyer and that means that I have to help and, you know, help to repair the world and and this is what I'm going to do. And every minute counts. Every minute is a gift of life that I appreciate and um And when I see what happens, you know, I just feel this need to do the best that I can do for my client because if they're brave enough to stand up and want to do something about it, then the least I can do is to support them in their quest for justice. Because I do believe, and I say this at the beginning of my book, in what Mahatma Gandhi said, which is be the change you wish to see in the world. So it's not only for me to do it, it's for each and every person listening to do it, and there's something that all of us can do. Many somethings that all of us in our own way need to find those somethings because you're needed.
1: You know, you reminded me of one of my uh, favorite quotes that, that you said, and, and I wrote this one down. I would encourage you to have a Rosa Parks moment every day. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. It's very simply stated, and it's just a wonderful reminder of when you're out and about in your day and you come across any level um... of injustice to to stand up and say or do something
2: yes and and i also say you you too can be a, a heroic warrior for equality each of us can do that and you, i'm very inspired right. i was inspired by the women's march on washington which of course i attended uh... and i had a news conference there with four of the accusers of mr trump and uh... you know i know there were marches all over the country in every state philadelphia um, a good friend of mine from Philadelphia sent me a photo of her in the march there. Um, and, you know, in California we had huge marches in every state in the nation and in some foreign countries. And I also, on the Internet, saw a group in Ant- Antarctica protesting. I think it said it was like 40 degrees below zero or something <laughs> they were out there.
1: Wow. So, you know what, uh, <laughs> we have commitment. to each
2: make the sacrifice and make our voices heard and, you know, let and and, and resist, resist injustice and persist in fighting against injustice?
1: Well, so here's my question to you, um, because I think you're one example of someone who has been working uh, against injustice for years and years and years, and there have been many, many women, and there have been many marches, yet we still continue to see some of the same bad behaviors repeating. Why do you you think
2: that Entrenched behaviors where there has been little or no consequences for these bad behaviors, as you call them, over the years. And that's why I'm a believer in consequences. You know, when when the wrongdoers understand, you know what, they may be shamed. There will be other consequences they're going to have to face. So it incentivizes them not to engage in those behaviors because the risk is too great and the benefit is too small. Right now, if they don't have to face the consequences, the benefit from their point of view is great. And the consequence and the risk is small. So we have to reverse that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've fought back against sexual predators and others who hurt women. Um, So, you know, we've won, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for victims because we're going to meet power with power. And they're going to understand that women are just not going to take this anymore, and they're going to stand up, and they're going to be heroic, they're going to be courageous. And they may be doing it in a confidential way, but they're going to be doing it, and they're going to fight back. And this, I think, helps to have us you know, there will be a realignment at some point. If, if, as and when, enough women do it.
1: Right, right um have you ever t- i'm guessing you have turned down a client and in- and if so what was the oh well of criteria? course i have to yeah, be-
2: yeah because i have um, contacted from you know individuals all over the united states mm-hmm. to take their cases so you know where we can help we will if we can't help we'll try to refer them um but uh and you know we're only going to work in our area of expertise for the leading women's rights law firm in the nation private law firm And so this, you know, for women and minorities, this is our area of expertise. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do everything in the law. We're only going to do that which we know and and that in which we have experience and education. And um, so, yes, uh, we we can't say no, we can't say yes to everyone, but we want them to have access to justice, if at all possible, to provide that to them.
1: Do you have one case, Gloria, that you are most proud of?
2: You know, I, I, I always say I'm proud of every case, you know, every case is the most important cases, our last case, our present case, and our next case. We're actually doing <laughs> many cases simultaneously at the same time. I have a dozen lawyers in my Los Angeles office. We have a New York office, and we are also, you know, applying to in other states to be admitted for uh, certain cases that we're doing in other states uh, as well, so uh, we just love our clients and those you know that we think that we can help and we're not fighting for them we're fighting with them right and it's an important battle because often it helps not just the individual fighting the battle but it has a ripple effect for others as well that's right and you know so it's it's extremely important for that reason corporations are learning a lesson uh that it can hurt their bottom line if they really don't enforce if they don't enforce the laws against sexual harassment in employment, they're gonna end up having to pay for it. Right. Um, so it gives them an incentive, you know, to make sure that they don't only post something on the board uh in the lunchroom, um, that they have to not only train but they have to monitor and make sure that the workplace is free of sexual harassment.
1: I'm curious, um, Gloria. This is kind of going back for a moment, but um, I think there's irony in the fact that you've you worked so tirelessly for women, and yet your two partners are men, Michael Morocco and Nathan. Well, yeah, and, I and have Nathan. more than two partners, but well, the, the two partners, partners that say, I
2: founded the. You're right that the yes. two partners I founded the law firm with. Michael Morocco and Nathan Goldberg were my our men They're, they were my classmates at Loyola Law School. Right. And I've been very fortunate that they've continued to be my partners for 40 years, but we now have other partners as well, including Dolores Leal, who's a very well-known and respected lawyer. Um and uh and and respected not only in the legal community, but she's uh, just an extremely well-known Latina uh lawyer who's very caring about everyone's rights. And so, yeah, and we just made some other women partners as well.
1: What what brought the three of you together back at Loyola? Um,
2: well, I think we, we started in the criminal uh the district attorney's criminal uh what do they call The district attorney's clinical training program. And so I got to know them, uh and I like their values. I like their commitment to justice. I like their sense of humor, and I thought it would be a good fit if I uh, sat down and talked with them about going into law practice with me. And they were really at the top of our class, exceedingly, you know, bright people, and hardworking. And they decided to go into into practice with me. And I've just been very fortunate because they're top-notch lawyers, and they're like my brothers. And you know, we love fighting for justice. We've also represented men. Uh, who have been the victims of injustice and this is what we love to do and we're going to continue it for as long as god gives us this gift of life
1: well that's a very long-standing successful relationship and you don't often see that is there is there something that you can Uh, say to the listeners that particularly women who work with men um, that is something that you do on a regular basis that has allowed you to keep that relationship healthy and successful? I think in
2: any relationship, Susan, it requires compromise and it requires being able to listen, which I think women are generally very good at, Mm -hmm. and you know, and decide well, okay, wasn't it really important to you, and do other people have good ideas? And if they do, maybe those ideas are better than my ideas. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But so we have to kind of not get our ego involved, but just think about well, what's the common goal, and how can we work towards that goal together, and you know what, you know how how do we achieve that goal, and what are the reasons the other you know others are giving. Uh, for maybe going to one direction rather than another direction. Do those reasons seem to have a good basis, in fact? And, you know, requires some compromise and being willing to be flexible and go in a different direction if there are good reasons to do so. Mm-hmm. So I think my partners and I, we've talked about so many issues over the years, and I listen. If I think they have a good idea, then I I tell them I'm really willing to readjust my position. And if I think my idea makes more sense than then they listen to, and then we just keep talking about it until we reach a consensus. Right. And I would say 99.99% of the time we reach a consensus. And that's why, you know, when you have mutual respect for people you're working with, it's easy. If you have contempt, people know that and you can't reach it compromise in a deal if you're working with someone and they know you have contempt for them. I have respect for my partners. I believe they respect me. So we're able to work together very well. Again, a good sense of humor always
1: helps as well. Yeah, definitely. That's, the, that's my number one. But I think you're right about you know taking ego out of um, conversations and, and situations is huge. Um, the last thing I want to ask you, Gloria, we just have a few minutes left, and this is something I think about, you know, on an ongoing basis as as we're seeing at the top of every news um, story today, uh, the the topic of race and prejudice and, and how can we bring people together. One of the things I, I think about is, you know, organizations of people with all the same thoughts, uh, race, cultures, et cetera create loyalty and and a a defensiveness and kind of a group think. so in other words if you belong to a particular group where everyone is the same um it creates this you know i'll say loyalty so that you're always kind of defending that particular group and not thinking as an individual so how will we ever stop racism and prejudice if we continue to separate ourselves and form groups like Republicans or Democrats or LGBT or NAACP, which kind of moves us away from individual thought and individual empowerment?
2: Well, I, I do believe in integration and not segregation. Integration of the races, integration of the genders, uh, and you know, and in, and in, in not. Not exclusion of people, for example, who are gay and lesbian or transgender, but integration. And I think that is the best way to eliminate prejudice. And, you know, education, not exclusion. Um, Integration is is really important. Um, I remember when I went to Girls High, there were actually only relatively few African-American women there, girls. They were very bright. So when I left Girls High, I, I thought you know, generalizing, I had the stereotype that all African-Americans were very bright and hardworking. Based on those, I knew a girl's high. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's important to get to know each each people as individuals. That's what matters.
1: Right, right.
2: And if we're talking at each other instead of listening to each other and talking with each other, um, you know, it's going to be a problem. So that's what we need to do and uh and and listening is important because minorities have suffered quite a bit and you know we all suffer for some from something during our lives sometimes it's get older and you know you get physical challenges you become the victim of various disabilities so let's be sympathetic let's think about what action is is required Uh, in order to, uh, you know, have everyone enjoy equal opportunity in education, employment and everywhere else, freedom from violence. Uh, And and let's just listen um, to each other and then take action that's appropriate that's going to show that we all should enjoy respect and dignity and equal rights and equal protection under the
1: law. Beautifully said. Uh, Gloria, I'm so grateful for you uh, taking an entire hour out of your day. I know how busy you are, and I appreciate your sharing your story uh, with us here today.
2: Well, it's great uh, to be talking to someone who's in the city of sisterly love. (laughs) uh, So uh, thanks so much, and I hope to see you soon and to come back to Philadelphia Go Phillies.
1: Okay. Thank you, Gloria. That's it, Thank everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Uh, please check out our website at net for all things related to the show, and have a great week.